Hi, this is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Surgical Robotics presents an enormous opportunity for companies. There are surgeon shortages, sporadic healthcare, and miraculous technological advancement in both robotics and communications. So to understand where this sector is headed, we invited senior executives from Intuitive to share their company's impressive story. Change is coming. Consider these upcoming episodes to be guideposts for the future to follow. Well, thanks for joining us on this first episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast. Again, this is Tom Salemi. I am editorial director of Device Talks. Device Talks is the sponsor and organizer of many meetings, both virtual and in person. And of course, many, many podcasts, including this here podcast, Intuitive Talks. You can find our library of podcasts at devicetalks.com. In Intuitive Talks, we're going to talk to senior leaders at Intuitive Surgical, and we're starting right at the top. I interviewed Gary Guthart, the CEO of Intuitive. He stepped right up to the plate, came our first guest on the Intuitive Talks podcast, and it was a great conversation with Gary. I never had the chance to speak with him before. We talked about those early days at Intuitive why he moved over from SRI to uh, to join the uh, Intuitive Surgical project and how he eventually became CEO. We talked about how Intuitive Surgical made its case to payers and providers about why its Da Vinci robotic system benefited not only them, but patients. So it's an important lesson that uh, robotic surgery companies will need to learn going forward. We also talked a bit at the end about the growing demand and the growing competition in the surgical robotics field. And uh, Gary shares his views on that. So once again, going forward, we'll release one podcast episode a month toward the end of the month. And uh, Intuitive is making their executives available for interviews, but these podcasts would not be possible without sponsorship from our Device Talks partners. So before we begin our first episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast, I'd like to bring in our first sponsor, Tegra Medical. I had the chance to speak with Mike Trelevin. Mike is the Senior Vice President of Engineering at Tegra Medical. Mike, tell us about Tegra Medical. Tegra Medical is, as our tagline says, where medical devices come to life. We contract manufacture complex components and devices exclusively for the medical device industry. We have a large range of manufacturing technologies like laser processing, precision machining, and injection molding. And we make single-use and reusable devices, many of which are for minimally invasive surgeries in areas such as cardiovascular, orthopedic, spine, drug delivery, and many others. Tegra Medical was created by combining companies that were experts with certain manufacturing technologies. It was all part of a strategy to create a single contract manufacturing organization with the synergies to offer true end-to-end contract manufacturing. We'll hear more from Mike Trelevin of Tegra Medical a little later in the podcast. If you want more information on Tegra Medical, go to Tegra, Tegra is spelled T-E-G-R-A, medical.com. Gary Guthart, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. Pleasure to be here. 
It's uh, it's going to be a great series. Really happy to be focusing on uh, on intuitive, and we're going to be uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of different aspects, both technical and clinical. But uh, we really kind of want to kick off the series with a conversation about how everything came together, kind of to set the tone. And I always jo- enjoy these uh, these origin stories, so to speak. So I was hoping you could take us back to the beginning. I, I listened to an interview you did with Device Talks a few years ago at one of our conferences. I believe there was a, a basketball game sort of was a was the key event to the uh the creation of intuitive surgical can you take us back into the uh, into the early 90s <laughs> sure sure <laughs> um yeah I'll, I'll clean up the basketball game story a little bit. Uh, the uh i i uh I got introduced to the technology at a place called Stanford Research Institute. Uh, it's uh, Northern California. Uh, you use uh, things from Stanford Research Institute SRI all the time. Uh, SRI is credited for inventing the computer mouse. Um, the uh, voice recognition technology that's in Siri was invented there. And uh, a team uh, was working on one of a few teams in the world working on robotic-assisted surgery early on. Uh, they, they predated me. I, I joined SRI um, coming out of graduate school as a postdoc in uh, 1992. Uh, there was a group for robotic-assisted surgery that had been originally funded by uh, some SRI funds and NIH, later funded by DARPA. Mm-hmm. And uh, that group was in process. Um, it was uh, started by a gentleman named Phil Green and, and later led by others. And uh, that basketball story, I was uh, working there in 1992-93. I ran into the head of that lab uh, playing basketball, and we got to know each other on the sidelines. And he was looking for help uh, in a certain kind of algorithms and mathematics that I was trained in. Uh, only in Silicon Valley do you have that conversation on the, <laughs> on the sidelines of a basketball court. And uh, he invited me to come over and look at the kind of work they were doing. And it was the early prototypes for the kinds of technology that you see in our products today. Now, what was driving that early effort? Was this a military initi- initiative first to sort of uh, develop a, a battlefield robot? Or what was who came along and said, we need to find a way to, to assist surgeons with robots? Yeah, it's kind of an off... Uh, often repeated myth uh, that that uh, the first application or first thought was a military application. Oh, okay. I'm glad I asked. The, yeah, the first the first thoughts were for uh, precision surgery. They folks at SRI they predate me, and by the way, I'm not a founder at Intuitive either. Just to be clear, sure. Um, they uh, their original thoughts early on were that they could advance uh, manual laparoscopy and other precision surgery applications. Um, using this kind of technology. They also thought there were remote surgery applications as might be applied in battlefield environments. So uh, there is a story with uh, DARPA and and the lead at DARPA, Dr. Rick Satava, that that does intersect with SRI early on. But uh, it wasn't that that was the first thought. Uh, Both those thoughts were present in that early group over time. They had some funding from different sources, including SRI and including NIH, and ultimately the largest funding came from, from uh, Dr. Satava and uh, DARPA. So what was that moment that you experienced the technology and you, and you saw this could, this could be something? So they were, uh, they were working on um, getting the, what amounts to the control systems right, making the, the, uh, the system that they were developing, this roboticist system, uh, intuitive, making it feel right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they invited me to come over and see it. I had not seen it before. And they gave me a little task. Uh, the, the project lead, a gentleman named Ajit Shah, 
Ajit said, here, try this. And he, he handed me a set of loops and he asked me to, to do some suturing by hand, um, kind of under magnification. And I'm not bad with my hands. I had some prior experience in kind of microassembly and other things. And, uh, but I never had any medical exposure. That was my first exposure was to suture back together a femoral artery on a rat in a lab. And so I tried that manually and I got made a little progress, but it was really hard. And then he sat me down on their prototype. First time I had seen it, which had a console and uh, the surgical environment with, with uh, uh, ro- robotic manipulators for the surgeon and then action at the, at the patient. And I did the same activity with zoomed, scaled up vision and, and uh, with robotic assistance. And uh, it was just immediate, immediately obvious to me. I stood up at that moment and went, wow, this is unbelievably easier <laughs> and really cool. So it was one of those things where a demo was worth uh, more than a thousand words. And after that, I, I went back to my boss. I was involved in a different program and, and I asked if he would support my transfer to that program. And he did. And from there on, I was, I was all in. So it was a lightning strike moment for me and uh, some serendipity that I had run into a JIT and that he had invited me to come join that effort. That's fantastic. Oh, those moments are, 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 are wondrous. So you, you mentioned you weren't a founder of Intuitive. It was founded in 95. You, you though, joined in 96. So you certainly came in on the early side of things. Uh, how did you uh, make that transition? How did you decide to join a, a company? Yeah, I, I was younger at that time. I, I was uh, enjoying SRI and uh, I met the founders. Uh, at the time, there were three, uh, three folks who had founded that company, <clears throat> Intuitive. Um, one uh, a medical founder, one a technologist, and, and then a person from the venture capital side. And uh, I got to know the technologist founder. His name is Rob Young. And uh, he had invited me to, to come join the company. And it, it took me a while to say yes. My initial instinct was it was going well at SRI. I enjoyed the work. I wasn't quite sure what what the business startup might look like, and ultimately, uh, after some back and forth, uh, the um, the person on the venture capital side uh, took me out to coffee. We sat down and we talked, and and he he convinced me that the experience would be worth it, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of where I headed in my career. That's a gentleman named John Freund, and and so John uh, asked me to come, and I ultimately said yes. I came in as a control system uh, engineer or algorithms person, uh, and I joined as the eleventh person in the company and the 10th uh, technical person, the 10th engineer, uh, which was uh, delightful. I'm glad I said yes. So how did then did you, how did the CEO position become available to you? How did that, how did that happen? And then we can start talking about the company, but I'm kind of interested in following your path a bit. Yeah. So uh, I, I started off on the technical side. Uh, after a couple of years, uh, we were um, working hard and growing. Uh, and uh, I was asked to lead a uh, the algorithms group initially, and then a software group. I, I did not aspire to be a CEO. That wasn't something that that was in my in my plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, our our uh, first uh, outside CEO, uh, Lonnie Smith, uh, came in. I got to know him in 1997, uh, and over the years, he. Uh, was a fantastic mentor. He had given me additional uh, responsibilities in management at, at some point, asked me to be uh, head of operations uh, and then president and COO. Uh, so I went through that process uh, in 2010 um, as part of a, a planned transition with Lonnie. He stepped up to uh, just be chairman of the board. He had been pre- uh, chairman and CEO and uh, invited me to be CEO. So I became CEO in 2010 and have been so since. Amazing. And how was that uh, that transition for you? Did uh... How did you 
how different is it as a job? I mean, it must be wildly different. And how did you, how did you sort of come to uh, uh, manage those differences and, and become the CEO of a, of a large, significant company? One of the things that uh, I learned early on uh, was, especially in this space, uh, surgical robots and the kind of technologies that we develop, uh, it's not a, a one-person show ever. Uh, mm-hmm. They're complex technologies. You need really great people in all sorts of different places in the organization, from engineers to training people to uh, software to your your business systems and everything else. And uh, early on, I, I learned... Um, Surround yourself with with people who are better than you, who are just outstanding um, in order to get the job done. And we were lucky. Our early staff were very, very capable and extremely collaborative. Uh, and that that was uh, kind of drilled into me uh, early on uh, as I took on other leadership roles, for example, uh, head of operations. I was not a manufacturing person by by training. I had come out of this applied research background. And, and so my first instincts were to go... Um, Find people who are just world class, uh, outstanding people, and invite them to join. Mm-hmm. Uh, common story, and we did that. And and CEO is no different. Whether it's uh, chief medical officer or our folks who run our our business systems or our commercial organizations, it's really been uh, find people who are just outstanding in the field and create an environment in which we can succeed together. Um, so in that sense. Uh, it was a continuation. Uh, the issues are a little bit different in the role that I play. I think uh, our job here or a job at the CEO position is make sure we have a strategy that uh, delivers customer value for the long term, make sure we have an organization that is capable, deeply competent, um, and, and well-led, and then make sure that the economics work for the company that, mm-hmm. that, that it can self-sustain. And, and so that's kind of the transition. Understanding that you weren't CEO at the time from the late 90s into the 2000s, I'm hoping though you can still sort of uh, paint a picture for us of those those early days when it wasn't, uh, maybe you can characterize the reception that, that intuitive and robotic surgery received from the, the healthcare community. But from my perspective, it was never 100% uh, certain that hospitals wanted it, that surgeons wanted it, uh, that they felt they needed it. Do you agree with that sort of assessment? And, and how did Intuitive sort of go about building support and, and helping people to see the, the, the benefits of the surgery? I'm going to take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Tegra Medical. I'm here again with Mike Trelevin, Senior Vice President of Engineering at Tegra Medical. Mike, you mentioned end-to-end solutions. Tell me more about what makes Tegra Medical's end-to-end solutions different than other companies. Well, many contract manufacturers claim to offer end-to-end solutions, but in reality, their expertise is focused in one area like plastics or simply assembly and packaging. When they say end-to-end, what they really mean is they offer supply chain management. And we like to differentiate ourselves because what we offer is far from just supply chain management. Tegra Medical is vertically integrated, allowing us to do the metal and plastics. We support our customers, beginning with our Genesis Tech Center product development services and extending all the way through manufacturing, finished devices, packaging, and sterilization management. This is really helpful in today's environment where regulatory processes are so stringent. It allows us to be under a single quality management system for an entire project. Mike, tell me, what are some of the deciding factors that go into an OEM's decision to choose Tegra Medical to make their device? We're known for not only creating sharp devices, but, and this is more difficult, keeping them sharp. We're able to manufacture the metal business end of a device and then keep it sharp all the way through the entire manufacturing process, including insert molding. 
which often causes issues with other manufacturers. No surgeon wants to find out an instrument isn't sharp enough while in the operating room. The other thing our customers really appreciate is that we're willing to manufacture the devices others find too difficult to make. For example, creating devices and implants with anatomical bends is very precise work. We've developed a proprietary process for creating the anatomical bends in intermedullary nails without compromising the implants, holes, and slots. We've often taken on work that other manufacturers walked away from because it was too difficult and or too hard to do efficiently. And let's talk a moment about robotics, Mike. Is Tegra Medical involved in surgical robotics? Yes, we're deep into creating components for the navigation system used in robotic surgeries. As you can imagine, these devices must be extremely precise. The tolerance on the parts is virtually zero. So it takes careful engineering during product development and great operator skill during manufacturing. Our years of experience making implants has positioned us well for challenges like this, and we look forward to tackling more of them. All right, well, that's great. Thanks, Mike Trelevin, for joining us on the Intuitive Talks podcast. Thanks to Tegra Medical for stepping up to sponsor this first episode of the podcast. Once again, if you want more information, go to tegramedical.com. Now let's get back into our conversation with Gary Guthart. Maybe you can characterize the reception that that intuitive and robotic surgery received from the, the healthcare community. But from my perspective, it was never 100% uh, certain that hospitals wanted it, that surgeons wanted it, uh, that they felt they needed it. Do you agree with that sort of assessment? And, and how did intuitive sort of go about building support and, and helping people to see the, the, the benefits of the surgery? You know, I, I'd say that uh, for sure, when we entered, there was uh, both excitement in some quarters of the healthcare community and deep skepticism in some quarters. And uh, uh, even now, after a, a, a fairly long history and a lot of data and evidence, uh, there's still some skepticism. Mm-hmm. So uh, not, not a surprise. Uh, I guess I, I characterized the folks who were uh, enthusiastic as those who looked at uh, minimally invasive surgery uh, as a really good thing and look to expand it into areas where it had struggled to gain traction. Uh, clearly, robotic assisted surgery uh, of the type of practice in the early days is a, uh, a child of the MIS, minimally invasive surgery movement. Mm-hmm. And so there are some folks who were saying, you know, a good example is in uh, prostatectomy. Um, prostatectomy had some very strong minimally invasive surgeons who could perform it uh, in, in a minimally invasive fashion, but it, it had not penetrated deeply. Laparoscopy had not penetrated deeply into the urologic profession because it's hard. There's a lot of reconstruction required. And so there were some in that space in urology that looked at this and said, hey, this is a tool that can uh, deliver strong outcomes in minimally invasive surgery and perhaps uh, extend it beyond the small group of surgeons who can do it laparoscopically. Some of those uh, surgeons are lap trained and were good. Some lap trained surgeons who were at the top of their game looked at it and said, uh, I don't need it. Mm-hmm. That may be true for them. That, that may be an absolutely true point even today. But then they said something else, which is I don't need it and nobody else does. <laughs> and, and that's the area that we disagreed with and, and hence some of the conflict uh, in those early days. So did, did you see uh, or, or was it presented that, uh, that Intuit and DaVinci was going to, I guess, democratize for lack of a, for lack of a better word, but to help, those, to, 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 to help those surgeons who maybe did need it to bring their level of 
uh, of uh, expertise up to those who, who said they didn't need it. Was that, was that the, the general thesis of what you were trying to do? We, we did think that, uh, that it would, that it had the opportunity to uh, expand uh, minimally invasive surgery, uh, both to surgeons who uh, otherwise were not satisfied with manual laparoscopy mm-hmm. and then extend through by extension, extended to patients uh, who were otherwise being offered uh, open surgical solutions where an MIS solution was possible. And uh, we did see it at that time that looked like an opportunity we had explored early on in cardiac surgery and then later in urology. Uh, and that came to pass. Uh, and early on, our medical founders and our and our technical founders had seen that as an opportunity, as a vision for uh, bringing MIS to a broader number of, of folks, high quality MIS. What measures or steps did you take to build that support, to convert surgeons, to, to, to win over hospital systems? Was it, was it a numbers play? Were you showing them data? Uh, did you have some other efforts that, uh, that you know, helped you spread the word and, and show them the potential benefits? The, uh, early on, oh, first, we, we uh, reached out and partnered with uh, surgeons who shared that vision, who shared <laughs> that mission. Um, and uh, one of the early champions uh, was Manny Men- Dr. Manny Menon at uh, Henry Ford Hospital in uh, prostatectomy and, and urology. And he was quite... Um, careful and, and rigorous in his data assessment and his data analysis. And he really took a, a lot of the first data sets as it comes to uh, prostatectomy and published them. And, and he, uh, he received a fair amount of criticism uh, and skepticism. And we found uh, other organizations, in this case, City of Hope down in Southern California, uh, looked to, they were uh, strong laparoscopic urologists and, and they looked to replicate his results to see if they could find uh, like value. Uh, and I think they entered it um, skeptical that they would, but, mm-hmm. but wanting to do the science. And they did the science. They did replicate his efforts and his studies. And uh, to their credit, they published it and, and said, we were surprised. Uh, there's more value here than we had expected to find. And uh, they were able to support Dr. Menon's results. And that started to shift the conversation um, around, hey, can this really uh, advance uh, the number of folks who are getting MIS? It was an exciting time for us. Sure, no, I bet. How about on on the payer side? I mean, one of the the, the, the one of the ways that the robotic robotic surgery was described, or at least it had been said that systems were purchased and never used. Uh, this may be apocryphal. It may just be the urban legend. But you know, things uh, systems sitting in the highway, not necessarily in the highway, in the hallway, not necessarily just Da Vinci, but just in general, that the robotic surgical systems were really more of a publicity play for a hospital than an effective tool. Did you did you encounter that, and how did you sort of battle against uh, those stories? Yeah, so the the because there's a couple of things. There's yeah, I think you've asked two questions in one, and let me just tease them <laughs> I apart. did. Thank you. <laughs> let, me, let me just tease them apart a little bit, if I may. Um, Please do. The, the the first one of how do we think about cost, and is this one of the criticisms early has been or had been, cost more takes longer, right? That was kind of the criticism, and the on the cost side again, there's just a huge amount of uh, myth. Uh, out there and and some, I think, lack of care in thinking about how cost works. So the, the cost that matters in the end, for example, you mentioned to payers, is the total cost to treat per patient episode. Mm-hmm. It, it, it isn't the cost of the scalpel, whether it's a robotic scalpel or a handheld scalpel, that is the dominant cost in the total cost to treat a patient who has 
a disease who's trying to get surgery to help ameliorate that disease. So you have to look at all of it, right? The material costs, the costs of uh, uh, complications, the cost of, of being in the hospital and so on. So that, that's the core economic engine. And over the years, uh, we and hospitals have gotten a lot better at being able to measure those costs. And it has to be done carefully. Um, sometimes folks stick on uh, capital cost. So cost of a system, that's the capital cost. There's cost to service that system. And then there's the cost of the kinds of things you use in surgery, the materials to get the work done. Uh, those costs are a little bit easier to uh, to assess. But again, they have to be done carefully. Uh, people can get stuck, stuck on the capital cost, but remember that capital lasts for years and years and does a lot of different surgeries. So you need to amortize its cost over procedures. When you do that carefully, uh, the costs uh, come out to be either very, very close to open and lap surgery, sometimes better. Um, if you don't use your system, so your comment about where these parked in hallways, in, in uh, some rare instances, people would buy it and then a surgeon would move on and other surgeons would not be interested and they'd be underutilized. In that, in that case, mm -hmm. the most expensive thing you can do is buy a robot and not use it. <laughs> that is not a good use of funds. It's not good for the hospital. It's not good for us. And if we see those things happening, uh, certainly on my watch as CEO, if we saw that happening, we would step in and help the hospital move that system, sell it to another person who wanted to use it. Uh, having idle capital isn't good for them and it isn't good for us. So we would we would take care of that. With regard to the final point you made of, hey, isn't this, wasn't this really just more about marketing than outcomes? There were people who assessed that criticism early on. Um, certainly, there are people that are excited about new technologies, and it's certainly true that hospitals compete with each other for, uh, for the patients in their community. So those things go on. Um, one of the ways to test, is that really what's happening? And one of the things that I looked at to test whether that's happening is, does a, ro does a hospital buy a robot, buy just one, advertise it, and then rarely use it? That, that would be just a marketing play. That would just be their idea of, I have it now, I can get people in the door. That uh, very rarely happens. And in fact, the, the counter to that often happens, which is certainly in the last several years, our biggest customers are getting to be bigger customers of ours. Uh, many, many hospitals in the US have multiple systems uh, that are utilized heavily, and then they buy additional ones. So this idea that, okay, I just need it for advertising purposes has been de debunked by the actuality that, that very large institutions who are quite capable, uh, major centers around the US, who are very sophisticated in terms of how they do their analysis of outcomes, uh, have continued to reinvest and double down with our products. And uh, that's because they use them. Thank you for dissecting my, my shotgun question. I'll I'll try to be more <laughs> more precise with the next one. Did did uh, Obamacare and all the attention being paid to cost containment did that uh, was that a positive? Did that have a positive or negative impact on uh, on your telling and selling this story? I think in the in the end, when we look back on it, it has been a positive uh, for us. I, I think. Uh, broad coverage for the population is a, an important and a great thing. Sure. And when that happens, I think people look around and say, okay, what, what are we trying to achieve? What's a hospital trying to achieve? And in the end, I don't think hospitals really care about robots. I, I don't think they give much of a thought about the technology itself. I think what they care a lot about is, can they drive, this is their words, not ours, the quadruple aim for their surgical programs? Can they get great outcomes? Can they get a great patient experience? 
Can they get a good or a strong care team experience for the surgeons, anesthesiologists, nurses? And can they manage the total cost to treat per patient episode? <clears throat> so can they lower total cost while getting quality right? And we've shown that uh, with our programs, the robots and the ecosystem that surrounds them, we can deliver quadruple aim value for hospitals. And with the increase in analytic powers, we can show that more clearly, more quickly. I think Obamacare with this idea of both access and quality and total cost to treat, uh, those are aligned concepts and that has worked well for us. Shifting gears a bit, uh, I do want to talk about the future. It's obviously the, the, the robotic surgery space is drawing more and more attention and we can talk about that, but I just wanted to drill into intuitive culture a bit. It just kind of got me thinking you're, you're based in Silicon Valley. Did, 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 is, do people in the building, do they see Intuitive as a medical device company or as a technology company operating in the medical field? And, or am I, is there really no difference that I'm trying to parse things a little, little too intensely? Oh, I think it's a good question. Um, I, I think we see ourselves at the intersection of uh, medical device and clearly uh, healthcare and technology. Mm -hmm. uh, if you walk through the buildings here, I'm sitting here in, in Sunnyvale, California, which is in the heart of Silicon Valley. I actually grew up here. Um, the, uh, I think if you ask people, are you a tech company? Nobody, nobody would say yes to that. Mm -hmm. um, if you said, are you a med device company? I think they'd say yes, yes, and. Um, <laughs> and yes, and clearly we're rooted in, in uh, healthcare. We have been from the beginning. Uh, product life cycles and the regulatory environment in healthcare are different than in tech, pure tech. Uh, so we, we view ourselves as sitting in that intersection. We, we scour the earth for great people who are interested in healthcare and then great technologies that can help create a, a technology-enabled ecosystem for our customers. So we really are the, the blend of those two and have been since day one. And does that experience give you a unique perspective on companies like uh, Amazon and Google that that famously try to make impact in healthcare and efforts? And not to, I'm not being snide or, or cute about it, but but have have difficulty and realize it's a, it's a difficult industry to to sort of change at least maybe at the pace that they want to change things. Do you sort of have a you think a, a unique perspective on what they're experiencing when they try to? enter this air, this industry? Uh, perhaps a, a shared perspective. I mm -hmm. And, and these, these are incredible uh, companies with sure. incredible capabilities. I, I think what all of us find, they and us, is that um, healthcare is is complex among along multiple dimensions. Um, and so it, it's not that a technology solution is a silver bullet to solve all these problems. And then given all the stakeholders in healthcare, that pace of change and implementation can be much longer timelines than uh, non-healthcare environments are. I think, mm -hmm. I think that's for folks who have come from outside healthcare when they come in, uh, managing all the multiple stakeholders, understanding where the, the uh, regulatory boundaries and needs are and doing well in that space is, is perhaps more complex than people see on initial blink. Uh, and if I may, I'll just give you a simple example as to what that complexity might look like. So fair enough. May I jump there? Yes, please go right ahead. Yeah. You know, if, if you ask the question, how many, how many human beings have to do the right thing the day of surgery from the time somebody comes into uh, the hospital or surgery center and gets checked in, uh, make sure that the, the uh, background is right and all the consents are right and the medications are right and goes through the the OR uh, has the procedure, has 
uh, discharged, is, uh, is checked out and sent home, it's good to ask the question, how many people have to do the right thing for that to be a good result? Because often we think about surgery as just occurring in the operating room. And for the folks who've studied that and some of the work we do too, the number is somewhere between 60 and 70 different people have to do the right thing. The day of surgery, that's just the day of surgery for this all to go right. So you get a sense of the level of complexity. And so if you come in and you say, well, I have an app for that. That's great. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's wonderful to develop an app. I'm not insulting anybody. I think it's a great idea, but it's just a complex thing. This isn't Angry Birds. It's something else. Great point. Uh, so looking at uh, your, your past 10 years as, as CEO and intuitive 20 plus years in the business, you, you've largely been the robotic surgery industry, the dominant player there, uh, at least in soft tissue. Uh, Strikers obviously doing orthopedic. How are you, how do you feel about the adoption of robotic technology? Has, has it happened as quickly as you had hoped it would? I mean, now you're obviously would like it to be, always wanted to be faster, but has there been more resistance to it? Have people been more receptive to it? What is, what have the last 10 years sort of, what feeling do those leave you with? It's a, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure um, it could go faster. There, there are some places, there are, there are um, pockets in different places where I think uh, we could have done better or the, the world, world might've seen the value more quickly than uh, than we did. Uh, there are certainly some places where we could have learned and, and improved. In other places, I, I think it adopted uh, relatively quickly relative to what, not so much what happens in the technology space, as we said before, but really what's happened traditionally in, in medicine. Um, there's still pockets of skepticism. I, I guess what I would say is uh, I, I feel like um, at times the most frustrating part is the lack of a consistent methodology for folks to assess value. Um, that, that I think is the right limiting step right now. Uh, we're getting better. The proliferation of electronic medical records, I think the embracing of analytics uh, within health institutions, looking at their own data has been a catalyst and something super exciting. I'm really happy about that. Um, one of the things that's been tough in surgery, you probably know, is uh, reading a small randomized control trial uh, that somebody has written in an academic institution rarely changes practice. And it's because uh, it tends to be not very predictive of what's happening in the outside world. What's happened today with electronic medical records, registries, and on-site real-world evidence is that folks can look at their own results in their own environment mm-hmm. and uh, assess for themselves. That has I think, uh, change the pace of adoption and in, increase the confidence of healthcare leaders in these in, in provider institutions to make good decisions. Um, and we feel like we can help that. It's been great. So that, that I think has been one of the positive updates. You talked a little bit about the field more broadly and other institutions, other companies that are doing things. We can talk about that too, if you like. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's where I was going next. I know we're we're obviously seeing Medtronic, J and J, and others having uh, developing programs. And I know that in the past there have been other companies that have that have developed systems that 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 I'm not even sure if they're around anymore. But this has a feel of of these are two of the larger companies in the space, and there are others that I'm not mentioning. It feels like the competition is is a little more direct. Uh, how do you look at uh, at these companies coming in, and, and how does Intuitive hold on to what it's got? And, and build build market share. Yeah. So I, I you know first just looking historically there there have been uh, to date commercialized uh, give or take twenty five uh, companies somewhere in the world that mm-hmm. have done surgical robots in the in the neighborhood. Uh, as I said before, I think uh, we we live in this world of surgery as 
uh, a field, MIS, as a subfield, and, and then uh, robotic assistance. Of those 25 historically that have been in the market, uh, about five are, um, have, have made it to about 1,000 systems uh, mm-hmm. somewhere in the world. Uh, you know, the experience we've had is that the, the prototypes aren't so hard to make. The, the first 100 shipments uh, are harder still you know, to get all the way through your regulatory clearances. But getting to 1,000 is... Uh, a little bit tougher um, because you're going to have to have demonstrated value. Uh, today, there are, there are probably a hundred computer-assisted surgery companies that are at least in the neighborhood of the kinds of things we're interested in. So I, I think the world has really recognized the value of this approach. Um, I think that that's positive for us. I would, I'd be shocked if otherwise we'd be in the wrong neighborhood doing the wrong thing. Um, uh, I think the larger companies have, uh, realized that value too, starting several years ago. And I think it's inevitable that they bring products to market and uh, customers will will have a choice. Um, from our point of view, I, I think the forward opportunity for improvement is huge. I'm, I'm really not worried uh, that Intuitive will run out of things to do or value to bring, or that this somehow becomes a really small market share fight uh, between a few players. I I think that looking out the opportunity for better outcomes in acute intervention, which is kind of how we think about it, somebody comes in and is looking to resolve disease. Um, we want to bring a technology-enabled ecosystem to help our customers provide that uh, quad aim resolution. Uh, I think that opportunity is just huge. So um, I think uh, customers will evaluate uh, other options. Uh, we try hard to be the first choice by understanding their needs best. Uh, but I think the market also has a huge opportunity to just grow overall. Does do you, do you anticipate that it would be difficult for a company to, I'm sorry, a, a hospital to convert systems if they have an intuitive system or two or three and, and they're, they're accustomed to it? I imagine there's just a built-in resistance to bringing in some new tech with new screens and new handles. Do you, Is that provide some sort of uh, protective qualities for intuitive? Yeah, I'd, I'd start with the following. I, I think first, um, uh, I, I don't think most customers view it as robot versus robot. Some, mm-hmm. some will. That'll, some people will be excited about some of the technical differences. All those technical differences come with trade-offs. But I think leadership at hospitals are looking for uh, programs that can that can create great value for them over time. Um, in that sense, it's the whole ecosystem. It's really the ecosystem versus the ecosystem that most hospital administration will be evaluating. Um, if somebody comes out with a, a new concept that can change the, the value of that ecosystem in terms of outcomes, in terms of total cost to treat, uh, then I think they have an opportunity to switch. If it's just a little bit different and it doesn't improve on those outcomes or it's inferior in those outcomes, then I think folks will stay where they are because retraining everybody and introducing new systems in is uh, a costly and long endeavor. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, I I do think uh, hospitals will be interested in evaluating alternatives. We we offer more than one thing uh, from different versions of our multi-port systems to single port uh, systems and so on. Uh, And we know they like to evaluate those. So I think they'll evaluate them. Uh, But in the end, they'll be evaluating the total value of ecosystem. And what I mean by ecosystem is the systems, the instruments that snap onto it, the software and analytics that go with it, our training capabilities for them, our analytic capabilities, and our customer support capabilities. All of those things together are the thing that help them deliver their program. 
Final question, I think. Sometimes I find another one, but I think this will be the last one. Where does where will your innovation will the, will the source or the origins of your innovation, your new tools, will that change in coming years? Do you do you see yourselves acquiring more? You've you've created intuitive uh, intuitive ventures, so you've got a venture program now. How do you see uh, innovation uh, changing for intuitive in the in the coming years? Yeah, over the. Uh... Over the past several years, we we value uh, both organic innovation. We we uh, attract, hire, retain, and develop a fantastic technical staff. Uh, we also look for people who have done great things. We we are not a uh, not invented here shop. If if folks are doing things that we think can accelerate uh, out great outcomes uh, or the depth of our offering, uh, we'll either partner them and sometimes acquire them. We we probably acquire uh, four to six teams uh, and technologies annually. Uh, we, we try to lean in and find those things uh, when we can uh, build them deeply into the company and rather than waiting until they're very big later. Um, uh, we do scour the earth, uh, mm-hmm. both for early things. And if there's a bigger program and we think it, it makes sense to bring it in, we're certainly open to doing that. Uh, Intuitive Ventures is such an idea, which is to give us an opportunity to interact with entrepreneurs in the space particularly in places where uh, we think that they can create new uh, value, whether it's new uh, digital or AI opportunities or new architectures that may help acute care. And so uh, it's been so far really, really well received. Fantastic. Well, that is indeed my final question. Gary, I appreciate uh, your taking the time and, and, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. All right. Thank you. Good to talk to you. You too. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks again for joining us on this maiden voyage of the Intuitive Talks podcast. Great to have the captain of the ship, Gary Guthart, CEO on the podcast as our first guest. But stay tuned. We have many, many more coming. You don't want to miss one. So you'll need to subscribe to our Device Talks podcast channel. You can subscribe to the Device Talks weekly podcast or this podcast and future episodes will be sent directly to your phone or your computer or wherever you listen to your podcast. So please do subscribe. Please do like, please do follow. Please do reach out to me. I am on social media. I'm on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. Once again, we're working on many, many great things for the device community, for the Device Talks community. Go to devicetalks.com to learn about our in-person meetings, our virtual meetings, and our many, many podcasts. Don't forget to tune in next time. We'll have another great episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast waiting for you.